Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. You are listening to the Mother of All Talk Shows podcast with George Galloway. I want to talk about this block of wood first, just to get him out of the way, because in many respects, he's the least important person that we'll be talking about on tonight's show. But he's important to me. Keir Starmer, he was barracked, even rudely although not a finger was laid upon him in a Barney in Whitehall this week, a Barney that he deliberately chose to walk through, a Barney of about 40 people. Uh, Their presence there was not a secret. You didn't need bloodhounds to tell that they were there, if you know what I mean. He could have walked along the embankment just outside my window, in through the doors of Portcullis House, where I sat for many years myself, and walked through an entirely private walkway into the Parliament building. But he didn't. He came out of the Ministry of Defence building and walked, rather than was driven in the officially provided state security, bulletproof, bombproof, even insultproof, automobile that the country provides for him, he decided to walk through a rough house of people led by someone called Piers Corbyn, brother of Jeremy Corbyn, about whom more in a minute. They shouted things at him, poor lamb. They shouted things like, why did you prosecute Julian Assange? They shouted things like, why are you betraying the working class, all kinds of mean things like that. The things that they shouted were all, as it happens, entirely truthful. Doesn't always happen that way, but on this occasion, they were entirely truthful. The entire British broadcast media machine went into overdrive to blame the Prime Minister, Boris Johnson, for this roughhouse in which no one had a finger laid upon them. The problem is, they said, someone shouted, who knows who, why didn't you prosecute Jimmy Savile? This is now described by the state broadcaster BBC as a false claim, but it is not a false claim. Just like the fact that Keir Starmer assisted In fact, persisted in assisting uh, the fake prosecution of Julian Assange. You'll remember that Boris Johnson said to Keir Starmer, you spent more time prosecuting journalists and not prosecuting Jimmy Savile, the notorious pedophile who sexually assaulted, raped and abused literally hundreds of people all the while being a star of the British Broadcasting Corporation. 
The BBC now says on every news bulletin uh, that Boris Johnson's claim is a false claim. But it is not a false claim. First of all, Keir Starmer undoubtedly spent a lot of his time prosecuting journalists. And secondly, Jimmy Savile was never prosecuted, although Keir Starmer was the director of public prosecutions. Now, he says he was not in charge of the file on whether or not Savile should be prosecuted. Uh, but he was the head of the department. And the file was with one of his underlings. His underling was deciding whether to prosecute a knight of the realm, Sir Jimmy Savile, a friend of the royal family, particularly close with Prince Charles, the heir to the throne. He was considering whether to prosecute one of the best known men in the land a fixture of the BBC for many decades. So if Keir Starmer was not involved in the decision not to prosecute Jimmy Savile, why not? Who but the director of public prosecutions should have been overseeing a decision of that magnitude with all of its potential to embarrass the royal family to shame the BBC and to shock the entire country and its population. If he didn't get involved, why didn't he get involved? So actually, Johnson's jibe was entirely truthful. And incitement by telling the truth didn't used to be an offense. Although it is now, as many of us are finding, Telling the truth can be a dangerous practice, as you may find in weeks to come, even here on the mother of all talk shows, which is why I say to you now, if you have not done so, you must follow me on my Telegram channel because it is perfectly possible, depending on what happens, after St. Valentine's Day, that that's the only place you'll be able to find me. So please download Telegram and follow my Telegram channel. If you want to keep hearing from me, of course. If you want to hear me speak what I believe to be the truth. I might be wrong. I might be right. I might be somewhere in between, but you can be sure that whatever I'm saying to you, I'm saying because I believe it. It is uh, a channel that is our last resort. So please, we'll give you the address later uh, on the screen, I think. Is it somewhere? T.me slash George Galloway. Please do it in the course of this show. Why am I sounding alarmed? Well, I'm alarmed on your behalf. It won't actually silence me. Uh, but there is every possibility that uh, war is about to break out in the Ukraine with Sir Keir Starmer's full backing. It's a strange kind of opposition we have in the British Parliament. You support everything that the government does. 
Only uh, later do you, in hindsight, make criticisms. But there might not be any hindsight if the balloon goes up in the Ukraine. Now, I have said to you repeatedly, and I say it to you again now, Russia will not invade Ukraine. But Ukraine may very well invade the millions of ethnically Russian people who live in the eastern part of their country, who were granted, according to the Minsk Agreement, autonomous status. An agreement signed by France and Germany, signed by the Ukrainian government itself, that would recognize these people as autonomous of the coup regime with its fascist base in the Azov Battalion and the street forces around the Hitler ally Bandera would grant them autonomous status. This is important. It's not a piece of semantics on my part. These people were promised, guaranteed in fact, in the Minsk Agreement, autonomous status. If as may be happening even as I speak, uh, the Ukrainian armed forces armed by Britain, the United States and other NATO allies pumped full like a turkey, pumped full, stuffed with NATO weaponry, launches an attack tonight or tomorrow or Tuesday or Wednesday as the Americans have predicted war will break out, then indeed there will be war because Russia cannot, how could it, stand by and allow millions of ethnic Russians, hundreds of thousands of them Russian citizens, to be massacred by NATO weapons in the hands of fascist and extreme nationalist forces in the Ukrainian armed forces. Of course, it could not. And so if such a massacre were to begin, then I have no doubt at all that the Russian armed forces would have to come to the defense of uh, their compatriots, of their fellow citizens in some cases, and of their own blood. That will be billed as a Russian invasion of Ukraine, but it will not be. It will be a defense of Russian people being invaded by a government that has already granted those people autonomous status within Ukraine. These are important distinctions that you must learn now before it is too late. If that happens, then we're promised uh, the mother of all sanctions regimes against Russia. That will have many consequences. The first of those will be there'll be no more Russian gas in Europe. Don't worry, Joe Biden has already got tankers on the ocean, bringing you much more expensive American LPG that will not fill even a tiny percentage of the gas supply that will be lost from Russia. That gas powers 
of German energy requirements and about 25% of all European gas requirements. In Britain, it's low, about 5%. About that 5% will be missed and will cause still further rises in the price of energy. In Europe, the factories will halt. The wheels will stop turning. There will be millions of people unemployed, but don't worry. If there is a war in the Ukraine, there will be millions, maybe five millions, maybe 10 millions of Ukrainian refugees flooding west into Europe. They just haven't told you that yet. But you can take it from me that the refugee flow from a war in Ukraine will make all previous refugee crises in Europe seem like a vicar's tea party. So get ready. Never mind arriving on dinghies in the beaches of southern England. Never mind that. Coming in there hundreds, I'm talking millions of refugees will be arriving by land coming your way soon. There will be many other consequences, one of which almost certainly will be the closure uh, by the British state uh, of RT, in which case you'll have to find me on other platforms, unless those other platforms also begin to shut down. This, of course, will be answered by Russia. There will be no British broadcaster or journalist plying their trade in Russia, period, full stop. There will be no ambassadors in London or in Moscow. There will be no journalists in Moscow if there is no broadcasting by RT and Sputnik here in Britain. You see where I'm going with this. This is about to go down the rabbit hole. Now, it may be uh, that the negotiations, which one must presume, are going on behind the scenes, will somehow pull a rabbit out of the hat. But it's late for that now. The US government has said, although they didn't tell the Ukrainian government, uh, that the war begins on Wednesday, in which case you can look out for me on my Wednesday night broadcast to react to it, if I'm allowed to make it, of course, because all in the name of freedom and liberty, this is being done. So we may be about to enter a period that we have actually never seen. Even at the height of the Cold War, uh, there were ambassadors in place. There were journalists working in each other's country. There was trade between the Eastern Bloc and the West. Now, you may be asking yourself, what's this all about? Which is a good question that they are asking in Moscow also. There is no doubt that the psyops, the psychological warfare that has been mounted now for months is an indication that NATO intends 
to have a war. But a war for what? All they had to say was that Ukraine, because it has a territorial dispute pre-existing with its neighbor, Russia, cannot join NATO. And that therefore no NATO armies and weapons, including nuclear weapons, will be sighted in Ukraine, at least until Ukraine no longer has a territorial dispute with its neighbor and can join NATO. That's all they had to say, but they would not say it. Now, personally, I think uh, this is a kind of madness. I have said to you many times, I understand the conflict uh, between the West, NATO, and China. China has an ideological system which is an existential threat to Western capitalism and American hegemony. It's obvious why you would have such a standoff with China. But Russia is a white, European, Christian, capitalist country. Why do you need to have Russia as your enemy? I'll tell you why. Because Russia has a leadership that will not allow their country to be ordered around in the way that the German government is un absolutely unembarrassed. Joe Biden said in the presence of the German prime minister that the Nord Stream 2 gas pipeline in Germany will not be allowed to operate. <laughs> how's that? How's that? for a definition of an occupied country. Occupied, yes, by 30,000 American troops, but more importantly, Germany's mind is occupied by the United States hegemon. The only European country that is sufficiently important and powerful enough to have any impact on this situation is France. And to be fair to little Macron, he's doing what he can to avert disaster. But it's quite clear that Germany and most of the other European countries, preeminently my own, of Great Britain, are no more than vassal states of the American empire. And it's going to cost them plenty, not just in gas prices, because when the conflict moves as it will back to China, you will find uh, that the same iron curtain has been brought down between Western countries and China as is about to be brought down between Western countries and Russia. No more Chinese imports, no more Russian gas, no more Glad, confident morning. You know, it's only six years since George Osborne and David Cameron announced the beginning of a new golden age between Britain and China. The gold 
has turned to ash, and we're going to discuss it at length on the mother of all talk shows. Without further ado, let's cross to one of the smartest young men in the United States. He's Jackson Hinkle, US-based political analyst and host of the increasingly popular podcast, The Dive. Let's hear from Jackson. Welcome on board, the mother of all talk shows, Jackson. It's uh, getting late uh, to avoid the war. What's your take on it? Well, I mean, I think that just about everyone in the world wants to avoid this war, um, you know, and especially Russia and Ukraine. It seems like the only people who really want a war are the same people who've been lying us into wars for decades and decades now, uh, the United States and the United Kingdom. And, uh, you know, Vladimir Putin is doing everything within his power to try and prevent this war. Uh, he made a plea directly to uh, British press this past week saying, I do not want this. All I'm asking for is the United States to uphold previous commitments that they have made to our country. So there's not a whole lot more that they can do. And the U.S. is going to do what they've always done, uh, manipulate foreign powers that they have already launched coups and regime change operations in like they did in Ukraine in 2014 to try and achieve their greater foreign policy goals of destabilizing countries that don't tow a U.S. you know hegemonic line on a global stage. It's uh, perfectly uh, expressed, perfectly summed up, uh, but it begs the question, why? Uh, two whys. Why are European countries uh, preparing to fight an American war that America is not going to fight? The American troops have now all been withdrawn from Ukraine. So have the British troops, by the way. Uh, but it is the continent of Europe that will pay in blood and economic ruin uh, if this war happens in the next 72 hours, as the U.S. has promised us it will. Uh, so that's the first why. The second why is the one I posed earlier. Why does the United States have to have Russia as an enemy? Those are really good questions. As for the first one, um, you know, I don't think that there's any real good answer for that other than uh, Ukrainians were stripped of their uh, of their voices in 2014 when the U.S. led a coup in the country. Um, they don't have a voice as to how their government operates anymore. They don't have a voice as to what their government is going to be going to war over, unfortunately. Uh, their government is more inclined, unfortunately, I think, to listen to United States, you know, deep state officials. Uh, that being said, we've also seen Zelensky come out and say that he doesn't want a war and he doesn't believe that uh, Russia is going to invade Ukraine. We've seen their defense minister, Ukraine's defense minister over the past uh, two weeks, say that Ukrainians should not be packing their bags. They should not be worried. This is all part of the United States's larger game of diplomatic chess. So Ukrainians, I believe, do not want a war. Unfortunately, again, as we've seen uh, the United States do and the United Kingdom do in Iraq and Afghanistan and Syria um, and what they're trying to do, I think, uh, in China right now, lying about Hong Kong, Tibet and Uyghurs, they are trying to destabilize foreign countries that don't tow their line on the U.S. global stage. Um, speaking as to, you know, the likelihood of this happening, 
uh, we're getting conflicting messages even out of the White House. We see some messages coming out and saying that, well, a Russian invasion is imminent. It's days away and it's going to happen this week. And then we're seeing other messages come out of the White House almost simultaneously saying, well, Vladimir Putin, he might not be so sure. He, he may not have made a final decision as to whether or not he's going to invade Ukraine. Uh, all the while, you know, Vladimir Putin is still uh, reiterating that he does not want to do this. It's a question of whether or not the U.S. is going to uh, break their agreements that they have previously made, going all the way back to 1990, and that have been you know, reiterated and re-agreed upon by U.S. and U.K. leaders and other, you know, Western-aligned leaders uh, to the Russians uh, for up until today, you know, and it's very, very disappointing to see this because I truly believe that the global population, though they do not want a war, they also might not understand just how big of a deal this is and how scary uh, the future could be with these two nuclear powers going to war. Russia is the most powerful military uh, that the U.S. would be fighting against out of any military in the past 50 years combined. Uh, the United States just got their butts handed to them in Afghanistan when they tried to maintain special ops and black ops and private contractors in Afghanistan, and the Taliban kicked them out. So I don't see this going well. Uh, the United States military is very apt and strong, but it's led by a bunch of individuals who want to saber rattle and go to war, um, even if it means countless individuals dying and, uh, you know, the, wor the world going into a very dark place. How's it playing in Peoria? What's the, what's the U.S. public's attitude to it? Or, or are they oblivious to it? The U.S. public is aware of what's happening, uh, but I they don't understand the uh, the history of what has taken place between the U.S., Ukraine and Russia. Right. The U.S. doesn't understand, again, as I just mentioned, that uh, they have made promises going back all the way to 1990 that they would not extend NATO or NATO troops or NATO weaponry one inch east of Germany, right, which is a very important point to bring up in this broader discussion. You hear a lot of people, even self-described socialists and self-described Marxists, who are going out on their broadcast, their podcast, their shows right now and saying that, well, you know, Russia needs to come to a formal agreement with the United States, and that might involve making concessions. Again, this is not about Russia asking or the United States asking for concessions. This is about the United States trying to impose their will on other countries and break promises that they've made for decades going back now. So I think the, the fundamental problem here is that a lot of people in the United States sure don't want a war, but they also don't, don't understand that the U.S., again, is lying us into another uh, potentially very deadly and costly uh, war that could amount to World War III. Is there any opposition to it, Jackson? I'm a living embodiment of opposition to this. We have plenty of anti-imperialists, both on the right and the left in the United States. I myself am on the left, but uh, Tucker Carlson, who has the number one news show in the nation for cable news, he averages 3.24 million viewers every episode uh, of his show per night. He has been a very, very vocal critic of the deep state's plans in the United States to go to war against Russia by lying us into this 
you know, this battle over Ukraine. So fortunately, there have been some voices of reason, both on the left and the right, uh, even in mainstream circles on this matter. But as for the rest of the mainstream news, you look at broadcasts like CBS, MSNBC, CNN, NBC, they are all directly falling in line with uh, the imperialists, the neocons, and the democratic establishments like Joe Biden and Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer, who would love to see nothing more than going to war with Russia. Because what that means is, A, destabilization of Russia, and in, in a moment where we are truly moving into an age of multipolarity, the ending of uh, unipolar American rule on the global stage, but also, as with every war, you're going to have a lot of uh, increased profits for shareholders of arms industry companies like Raytheon and Boeing and all the others. Well, what about the Trumpers? Now, I, I said the other night, it's a controversial point, but it's genuinely my view uh, that if uh, Trump was the president, uh, there would have been a deal cut by now with something in it for everybody. Uh, I, I believe that. I don't know if you do, but in any case, what is Trump and his support base saying about this? It's very possible. I don't think it's that outrageous of a statement uh, for you to have made. Donald Trump, he notably campaigned as being an anti-interventionist, uh, especially with regard to certain countries. Notably, when he got into office, that all kind of changed. Uh, he was forced, his hand was forced into appointing notorious deep state officials like John Bolton uh, into his administration, James Jeffries into his administration to oversee Syria. Who knows what could have happened? Uh, it's very possible that there could have been some sort of a diplomatic talks that would have ended this crisis long before what we're seeing right now with Joe Biden. Uh, unfortunately, that's just not the case. And we don't know what we do know is that we have Joe Biden in office, a man who has been uh, probably the most notorious warmonger for the past 40 years of his political career that has been entirely funded and propped up by corporate America. And he wants nothing more than to try and destabilize uh, a foreign adversary in his eyes like Russia. But getting back to that question you asked me a minute ago, why can't the United States be working with Russia in a mutually beneficial way? That's a great question. It's a question that's been posed for, for years in American politics. Henry Carey, who was Abraham Lincoln's economic advisor, wanted nothing more than this. He wanted to industrialize the world with leading global powers like Germany, for example. Uh, I think that Right now, we're seeing Russia and China work together to try and industrialize the world, and they're reaping the benefits of that. America, on the other hand, can't provide food, uh, clothing, clean drinking water, electricity, stable housing, or healthcare to our population because we have 800 plus military bases in 80 different countries, and we're waging who knows how many wars. That's the law of unintended consequence, isn't it? That by picking a fight with both Russia and China at the same time. Uh, they have pushed Russia and China together uh, ineluctably to the point that they're more or less one block now. And for someone my age, that's quite a surprising thing. Yeah, it's really incredible. And you're seeing not only Russia and China unite, uh, act more, I'd say, as partners rather than close allies, but they are uniting. 
you're also seeing these two countries in this age of multipolarity that we are being ushered into work with a bunch of other smaller countries all across the globe who have made a formal alliance called a group of friends in defense of the UN charter, right? And they are working together to circumvent U.S. sanctions, to try and work around U.S. hybrid warfare, like regime change operations, meddling in the media of sovereign nations. Uh, and it's working, right? That's why the United States is, as so many see it to be, a crumbling empire, because they no longer are able to have their uh, control over every single corner of this globe. It's showing that Russia and China, um, notably even after the 2014 coup in Ukraine, uh, when Crimea, was, after their referendum, was officially annexed into Russia, uh, they, they have a substantial amount of control that they're able to exhibit on the global stage in a balance to the United States. So the United States right now, as I see it, is freaking out. They don't know what to do. They see that their empire is crumbling. They understand that the citizenry, both left and right, are opposed to them. There's a political realignment happening in this country. Even the majority of Republicans uh, of this Trump MAGA base that you mentioned are opposed to going to war with Russia. It's an incredible thing. It's a beautiful thing as an American to see this. Unfortunately, our politicians don't listen to us. Our politicians listen uh, to corporate America, to deep state officials, and that's how it's going to be for the foreseeable future. I told you this guy was good, didn't I? Jackson, how do we uh, see your work? How, how do people follow you on the dive? I appreciate the kind words and thank you for having me on. Uh, you can find me on YouTube at The Dive with Jackson Hinkle. I'll be doing that, and I encourage everyone else to do so. Jackson Hinkle, thanks for joining us on the mother of all talk shows. Will there be war over Ukraine? 2,000 people have voted already. Uh, on uh, Twitter, 25% say yes, and 75% say no. On YouTube, 23% say yes, 77% say no. On Telegram, 21% say yes, and 79% say no. Get voting on those platforms. Social media coming in. We've got, by the way, the biggest audience we've had for a very long time this evening. Uh, Brian Holden says, the real objectives are to make weak leaders in the US and UK look strong, to stop the Nord Stream 2 gas pipeline, and to find an excuse for expansion of NATO further east towards Russia. And Senor says, Tony Blair's NATO bombed my Serbian brothers in Belgrade. No wonder Russia does not want the Tony Blair NATO war criminals on their doorstep. Pat Brannigan says, the real countries that get hurt by sanctions are the European countries that used to sell to Russia, but now cannot. So they lose that revenue while Russia just creates its own products or buys them from China, Pat. Back Boza says, from what I can see, the personal involvement of Boris Johnson in this crisis has been all that has stopped any war breaking out already. He's the one international statesman with the clout and integrity to act as an honest broker who all can trust. That's signed Ward 5, Broadmoor. Mark says, yes, we are overdue a war. It's been a while. And Mar says the only difference between Democrats and Republicans 
is the speed at which their knee hits the floor when a corporate donor <laughs> enters the room. Uh, have I got time for a call? Let me take Elliot in Florida. Go ahead, Elliot. Oh, George. Yeah. Uh, thank you. Welcome. How are you doing? Oh, well, good. Um, you know, I wanted to, I wanted to ask or, or make a comment and get your reaction uh, about uh, Macron's uh, visit to uh, with Putin, his yeah. talks with Putin yeah. uh, over the Ukraine issue. Um, uh, no, I haven't heard anyone point this out or, or make this comment. The analysis is, uh, rightly so, that uh, Macron is facing an election and he uh, with a, a challenge from the right, and, uh, and that's why he's making these overtures. But it sticks in my mind that there was a, um, the, uh, what do you call it, the AUKUS uh, submarine deal that yeah. was a stab in the boot to, uh, you know, and there's a, there's a phrase, uh, I guess it's Italian, uh, vengeance is a, a dish um, uh, best served cold. And uh, I'm wondering if you think that that might be part of the motivation that he might sign an agreement with Putin that uh, they will vote against uh Ukraine. Well, uh, uh, I don't think he signed an agreement, and an agreement with France would be worth nothing in any case. Uh, it's not France that's going to be fighting the war against Russia. Um, but uh, there's something in what you say, without doubt. You could uh, put that another way, uh, because everything depends which side of the telescope you're looking through. Uh, Macron knows better than most uh, just what a treacherous organization. NATO is, Perfidian Albion is, and Senile Joe is. Uh, so he's not keen to be led into a war by them. Uh, I think that Macron is facing uh, an election, and this attempt to avoid war will probably help him in that election. Uh, but uh, Joe Biden is facing a catastrophic opinion poll results as is uh, Boris Johnson, who may very well be now living on borrowed time. So every political leader is acting for a multitude of uh, reasons, subject to many factors. What counts is the end result of what it is that they are doing. And the truth is, Macron is attempting to stop war, while the British and the United States leaderships are attempting to create one. Coming soon to Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and wherever you listen to the Moats Podcast. Now, you'll know already, if you're a regular viewer, that I'm very proud to have played a part in the downfall of Robert Maxwell. The fraud that he was, it's been 30 years since Robert Maxwell fell or jumped or was pushed off the back of his yacht, the Lady Ghislaine. Ghislaine Maxwell, whatever happened to her? Now look, this podcast will be released at 10 p.m. on Sunday, the 13th of February. But if you want exclusive access to the whole series in video form, you can do it right now. And you'll be able to see every episode three weeks before the podcast is released. So here's how you do it. You click over to my Patreon, sign up and support my channel right now. Search patreon.com forward slash George Galloway. But this is just the start. We've got 
so many plans for my Patreon page. I'm really genuinely excited about it. So uh, you'll be able to not just listen to uh, my book about the 1970s, but hear me discussing the music, the films, the, the, the culture, the politics uh, of the 1970s. You'll be able to do that. But perhaps most importantly, I discovered a treasure trove of video of all the speeches I made in the run-up to the Iraq war. Some of you might even have been at those meetings. It's really weird looking back at them, what I looked like 20 years ago, what you looked like in the audience 20 years ago. You might very well want to see yourself at those meetings. I've led convoys thousands of miles. I, I led a red London bus all the way from Big Ben to Baghdad. An epic journey, an epic movie, voiced by Oscar-winning actress Julie Christie. You can find it uh, on my Patreon page as well as elsewhere. Um, and I took uh, several convoys all the way to Gaza, which uh, was not quite as long as the journey to Baghdad, but very much more difficult and uh, troublesome. Um, the uh, art of the convoy is for it to be big and broad and colorful and in a good cause. I continue to believe that the Freedom Convoy in Canada, which is now being replicated, I see, around the world, is not just a good cause, uh, but is being done extremely well. And most of the public thought so too, because actually they raised millions of pounds in donations uh, to assist their Freedom Convoy. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. In an act of shame and theft, uh, several now um, funding platforms, GoFundMe being first, but now followed by others, sometimes asking under orders uh, from the uh, governments, government of Canada in particular, but not only, uh, to be uh, take the truckers off the air to stop them receiving the life's blood of publicity and the oxygen of funding to keep their campaign going. 
Many of those who describe themselves as on the left don't like these freedom convoys. They don't like the truckers. Even though the truckers are, by definition, working class people, blue collar people, uh, people who work for a living and whose ability to work for a living has been severely undermined by the policies of their government. Now, me, I'll always be on the side of the workers, whatever the official communists and socialists and even trade unions say. I don't think I'm alone in that, but I have been facing my own personal backlash about my stand on this. But the campaign by the truckers and the convoys has continued to grow. A cross-country convoy in the United States is already underway. There's one in Australia. Uh, in uh, Windsor in Canada, a town I know well that I've spoken at several times, uh, there is effectively an occupation going on in the town. So we thought we would uh, have up first James Melville, who is an analyst, an independent freelance writer, takes a close interest in these matters. He's a Scotsman from Fife with a big following. How did that happen? James, welcome to the show. Evening, George. How are you? I'm well. Now, um, how did a man from Fife get the kind of following from around the globe that you have amassed? That's a very, very good question. By just trying to give my own truths, it wasn't something I set out to achieve in the first place, but, you know, men from Fife are quite opinionated, and so I think some of my opinions resonate. But like yourself, when you put opinions out there, um, sometimes people agree with them, sometimes people don't, um, and you become a little bit marmite. But that's the whole point of freedom of speech. People can decide whether to follow or not. So I've been doing Twitter for about four or five years, and it's just grown um, I see my politics as left of centre, um, but not down any rabbit hole of a tribe. And in particular, things like lockdown and vaccine passports and also the truckers and why they're doing it. Um, I've been very, very supportive of the truckers because they see themselves from a working class point of view, losing their freedoms, losing their rights, losing their ability to, to gainfully work in the way that they see fit. So I'm all for the truckers, and I'm pleased that that movement is spreading worldwide. Well answered. Now, uh, let's start in Canada. What was particularly egregious uh, about uh, Trudeau, Justin Trudeau's government's stance that triggered this mass response from, uh, from the truckers? I think it's twofold, George. I think, firstly, it's something that's been coming down the tracks a long time about loss of freedoms, um, the draconian measures around lockdowns. The vaccine mandates and vaccine passports, I think, was fundamentally, though, the Trojan horse for all of this. Because when you get to a point where you take away someone's medical choice, and medical autonomy, that is crossing the line in terms of tearing up liberalism and Justin Trudeau and a few others around the world in terms of what's going on in New Zealand and Australia and in France, the self-styled so-called um, progressives 
are actually behaving in the most authoritarian way. And I think we've also got an ideological discussion here as well about what the definition of the left is. I do not see the left being manifested in the shape and form of what's happening in these countries right now, particularly by the government. The left for me is about two things. Firstly, protecting those who need it most. And part of that protection is the second point, is protecting people's freedom and their ability to spread their wings and flourish in society. Now, uh, I had an angry uh, former trucker uh, on the show last week. He called up, not happy with me, and a lot of his friends then bombarded me with complaints about my discussion with him. He argued that the only thing that Trudeau was requiring uh, was uh, proof of vaccination from people who were intending to cross the American border with their trucks. Is that true? No, I don't think it is. Uh, basically, in Canada, they are going, they've gone down the route of vaccine passports, although this week, interestingly enough, possibly because of the, the truckers' convoy, some of the provinces in Canada have now U-turned on vaccine passports, which again shows you the power of a people's protest. This is one of the biggest mobilizations of a people's movement in the last 30 years. Now Trudeau scuttled off in the last 30, over the last few days during this particular protest. He was claiming he was unwell with COVID, but what a true leader should have done, he should have actually had a dialogue with the truckers understood what their concerns were, rather than smearing them, as he did, saying that they were bigots and racists and ill-informed and ignorant. Instead, what we're getting on this convoy in Ottawa is largely a peaceful protest where the truckers are giving food to the homeless, the public are actually giving jerry cans to the truckers because the police are stealing some of their fuel, and a lot of this isn't actually reported on mainstream media. It's reported largely on social media and forums like yourself, George. But this is a massive, massive people power protest. And it's not being reported on the channels it should be reported on. So therefore, it gives the impression with a lot of our media and our political leaders who are trying to clamp down on this, that they're turning a blind eye to people's movements. And this people's movement is fundamentally a good thing. It's about freedom. It's about people getting their rights back. It's about people having the opportunity to flourish, survive and live in society without a heavy hand of government. He even called them transphobes. I thought that took the biscuit <laughs> myself. Truckers, transphobes, heaven forfend. And this from a prime minister uh, who habitually uh, blacked up his own face uh, in an act of brazen cultural appropriation uh, of, uh, of black people. But you stumble on, or we have, you and I, stumbled on uh, something on which we strongly agree, that it is undoubtedly the case uh, that it is the so-called liberals, self-defined liberals, or leftists in some countries, who turn out to be the most authoritarian people of them all. Who'd have thunk it? Therefore, it gives a suspicion of it's the masquerading as something. What I want from our political leaders is authenticity. Now, if you look at, I mean, if you look at, for instance, what's happened in the Labour Party, I know we're going in a different direction here, but for instance, with the Labour Party in the UK, Jeremy Corbyn, whether you agreed with him or not, had an authentic style to him. 
People, he did what he said on the tin. If you look at, for instance, Starmer, no one knows what he stands for. And if you look what's happening with Trudeau, what's happening in New Zealand and Australia, what's happening in France, you're getting individuals who, under sort of cloak and dagger, are pretending to be progressives. But actually, the, if you look what happened in Paris yesterday, for instance, where again there was a convoy and a protest about vaccine mass, vaccine mandates and vaccine passports, and yet the, the police got involved with some heavy-handed tactics involving tear gas and batons. Somebody was that killed. Is not, that is not the actions and the diktats of progressive governments. And I think we're in a different situation now, George, because I don't think the ideological battle is about left versus right anymore. I think there's a battle within the left about what the left actually means in terms of what is authentic left. But I think the debate has now moved on in terms of ideology. It is about authoritarianism versus a form of genuine liberalism. And there's a definition that has to be discussed about that as well. The, the old sort of dynamics of left versus right, based on what's happened over the last two years of COVID, I think the debate has now moved on from that. You're getting people from a bipartisan point of view who are forming alliances with, with people from previous issues on the other side. So, for instance, the old phrase that politics makes strange bedfellows applies to myself. There's people I was on a different side to, for instance, as a Remainer on Brexit, who I'm completely on the same side with over um, the, the pandemic and the response to the pandemic. But that's a healthy thing. You've pointed this out before. Even Russell Brand has pointed out this before. We should be willing to work with people with different opinions on different issues to try and resolve a current issue. I think that bipartisan movement that's happening over COVID and the response to COVID, I think it's a healthy thing. Well, as that great Marxist Groucho Marx said, when the facts change, so do my opinions. And the facts are clear that it is the so-called liberal, centrist, social democratic governments uh, that are behaving worst uh, on these issues of uh, bodily autonomy, of medical choice, and so on. And that is providing, or producing rather, uh, new alliances. But in fact, for quite a long time, James, uh, what was left and what was right uh, was beginning to come into question. And that's something you and I can perhaps discuss another day. Going back to Canada now, uh, are you aware of what's happening in the town of Windsor uh, in Canada? Because I have uh, good memories of that place, and yet it's beginning to look like uh, Paris with the uh, heavy-handed actions of the security forces. In Canada, for God's sake. Yeah, well, it's been happening in New Zealand and Australia. In Australia, in terms of the protests, this is another thing that has been sort of the, the mainstream media have been turning up largely a blind eye to. The protests about vaccine passports in particular have been going on for months. In Australia, every weekend they've been going on. Peaceful protests. People have been, people have been lighting candles, doing vigils, singing songs creating the optics of peaceful protests in numbers that are growing week by week. It's the same in Italy, it's the same in Germany, same actually in London as well. And quite often those protests have been smeared by individuals in government and also in the media as anti-vax protests. There will be some anti-vaxxers on those protests, but the majority of people who are on those protests are doing those protests for a number of reasons. One, concerns about freedom. Secondly, about they see it as an unethical mandate through vaccine passports. And then you combine it with the point that you've just mentioned to tie that back in, the heavy 
almost brute force, sanctioned by progressive governments to get the police in with batons and tear gas, not just in Canada, but it's, it was happening in Paris yesterday, and it's been happening in Australia on and off for months. And so therefore, we have to have somehow an open conversation about what actually defines a progressive government if that is the measures undertaken by so-called self-styled progressive governments. Stay on the line, if you will, James, uh, because we've got a caller from Ontario, Ken, uh, on the uh, truckers. Uh, if that's technically possible, uh, let's, uh, let's hear from Ken. Ken, go ahead. What would you like to say? Hi, George. Hi there. Um, I had the pleasure many years ago of being on the steering committee of the Canadian Peace Alliance, which brought you to Canada on a speaking tour. I recall. Yes, very well. Thank you. And we, uh, we loved, we were thrilled to have you here, and we loved what you had to say in solidarity with the Palestinian people and uh, against the U.S. intermeddling in the affairs of the countries of the Middle East. Yeah. But we are uh, somewhat dismayed by the fact that you see the so-called Freedom Convoy as a manifestation of, a, of workers in Canada, and it's exactly the opposite, George. The uh, the uh, people well, it, who Ken, are Ken, Ken, it is a manifestation, and they are workers. So no, they you, aren't. Uh, you may, you, I beg to differ. All right, with you. go on, go on, differ, differ. Okay, thank you, George. Uh, the, the Teamsters Union, which represents the unionized uh, drivers in Canada, condemned the Freedom Convoy, and so did the Canadian Labour Congress, which represents. All the union, almost all the unionized workers in Canada, and that's because these are people who are not uh, unionized workers. They're not even wage workers. They are owner operators and small trucking firm owners who employ other workers, usually immigrant workers, usually South Asian Sikh drivers, as their employees, and who, and these workers, incidentally, are responsible for 80% of the labor standards complaints in Ontario for theft, wage theft by these owner-operators. And that's who is in this convoy. Well, there must and be the an awful lot of them, Ken, because uh, the pictures I see uh, is a vast number of drivers. Let me tell you, I stopped taking ideological guidance from the Teamsters around the time of Jimmy Hoffa. Uh, so don't pray them in aid uh, to me. Uh, it seems to me that your problem uh, with these workers is that you're not leading them, uh, that they have decided to take action themselves. And if you're not leading them, they must be fascists. Uh, no, there, uh, George, uh, if I may again disagree, uh, they, uh, the, re the people who are leading these owner-operators in the so-called Freedom Convoy are indeed fascists, and I'm referring specifically to Tamara Litch, who was one of the organizers, and she is a right-wing extremist person who belongs to a separatist party called the Maverick Party and the Wexit Party in Western Canada. And they, another leader is Pat King, who is an open white supremacist who speaks at all their rallies. They're, they have a control room in a luxury hotel right now, as, I'm, as you and I are talking, in Ottawa, in which one of Trump's closest advisors is part of a discussion, part of the planning of, of these events, along with former and uh, p uh, police officers, RCMP officers, and 
uh, and uh, military intelligence officers. This has nothing to do with the working class. Well, you've got a very funny definition of fascism, I must say. Uh, but let's hear from, uh, from James Melville, and then I'll let you back in, Ken. Go ahead, James. Yeah, I was just uh, taking the words out of my mouth, George. The definition of fascism, effectively, it's like, you know, it's like almost the um, horseshoe theory. You know, you talk about sort of authoritarianism and fascism, but you end up sort of meeting somewhere down in the sort of murky waters at the bottom. For me, if you have a government that isn't allowing people medical choice, shutting down good businesses for months on end, stopping kids from education, shutting the schools, masking the kids, having issues of elderly isolation, causing mental health issues, crashes to the economy, good businesses not allowed to basically function, restrictive trade, combined with trying to shut down largely peaceful protests, that is the, sh the horseshoe theory of authoritarianism, fascism. You can, it's like basically two cheeks of the same backside. They seek an, uh, an alternative definition of fascism. Uh, one set of people are called fascists because they're small business owners, uh, owner drivers, and because uh, they may have uh, used the wrong pronouns or voted for the wrong party. Uh, and there's another definition of fascism, which says a state mandating you to receive an injection against your will. Uh, some would say that is a better definition of fascism. Ken. Uh, George, uh, we in the trade union movement uh, think that Trudeau's and the provincial gov uh, premier's response to the pandemic was pitiful and weak. They were unprepared. They had whittled down our health care systems uh, to the bare bones. Uh, to the bottom of the OECD countries in terms of beds per thousand. And we think that they've had a miserable response. But uh, the, the point of the, uh, the uh, protest isn't uh, about uh, the pandemic anymore. It was, uh, it, it was an, an attempt by notable, noted and well-recognized right-wing fringe elements. This is their second Well, there must be an awful lot of them, Ken. Well, you keep saying that. Ken, you've named three people. You've called them fascists. I've never heard of them, so I don't know if that's correct or not. I suspect that it isn't. But there's thousands and thousands of truckers here. Are they all fascists? Uh, George, you failed to note that there have been counter-protests by ordinary working people, including union members, uh, that have been organized. There's one going on right now in yeah. Ottawa yeah. as we speak. All Yesterday, right. uh, but 7, Ken, you're not answering. People. You're not answering my question. No, Ken. I'm not saying that everybody in the protest is a fascist. There are a lot of disgruntled uh, people who uh, isn't there much right to be disgruntled people. about in Canada and Trudeau? Wouldn't you be better throwing your lot in with other blue-collar people that that reject the government of Trudeau, an imperialist stooge? Wouldn't that be a better approach? for the so-called trade union movement to adopt? Well, the trade union movement opposes uh, the government uh, of, of Trudeau. You're backing them now. You're backing You're backing them against the truckers. Not at all. But these guys are not workers. They're not blue-collar. Well, and they are being funded 
from outside the country. Well, that, Mainly the, 50% the, of all the troops. funding came from the Ken, U.S. Ken, these are all troops. These are workers with blue collars who work for a living, who depend upon their work to live, and they are in action. Isn't that, isn't action against Trudeau and the Canadian state something that you ought to consider uh, whether you should join? Have you been able to move large numbers of Canadian workers against Trudeau, against the system there? I suspect that you have not. I've got another caller on the line. James, stay on the line. Anthony is in Detroit. Go ahead, Anthony. Hey, George. I'm uh, on the other side uh, from the bridge from there in Windsor, Canada. And, yeah, they had it blocked over for about eight days, I want to say. Unbelievable. And That's unbelievable. I've been in Windsor, a peaceful, uh, sleepy place. And the state have basically uh, closed it. Well, they did. The police moved in last night and today and kind of took them out. And it wasn't too too violent, even though it did look like a big show of force. But now the thing is, I say I don't think this kind of blockage would have been able to happen for 30 minutes here on our American side. And as a matter of fact, the uh, the big three automakers were getting so uh, upset about this blockage that our governor in Michigan, the one who almost got kidnapped by the FBI, she offered to send over some heavy equipment, quote unquote, for the Canadians if they couldn't handle the job, like on day two of the blockage. Wow. So, yeah, no, just, I mean, it, look, it really this is a movement. It's a movement of working class people. It may be incohate. It may have some people who support it, some people on it uh, who are either rough around the edges or worse than that. But if a large number of working class people get involved in action uh, to break a policy which is wrong, being implemented by a government which is bad, shouldn't workers, trade unionists, leftists be getting behind it, getting involved in it? Absolutely. I don't know where the left is on this. It's kind of sad. And, you know, they always say, oh, well, 90% of the truckers are vaccinated. So these people don't stand. I'm like, well, that doesn't matter. This is still, you know, the the little working man against the big government and the big business. So even if 90% are vaccinated, that 10% still matters. They're, well, you know, I'm vaccinated. Right. This is not about vax. This is about uh, the determination of states to instruct, impose, make mandatory uh, on those who do not wish it to take a medicine. The, how can anyone support that and call themselves left wing? Oh, absolutely. That totally flies in the face of the same arguments that the left wing makes for abortion. But, you know, the sad thing is, you know, I, I'd rather take the Canadian healthcare system over our American system here any day. But this whole uh, pandemic and the control that our government has exerted over us, I think it's really damaged the movement for, uh, you know, universal health care in America. I think a lot of people are taking a second look and saying, oh, if I'm going to be forced to take a medication, I'm not sure if I want this kind of thing. Yeah, that's a good point, it. actually, James, isn't it? Uh, that uh, th those who have been... Uh, ad advocating, agitating for decades in America uh, for a public health system uh, might well now wonder that the public health system, does that give the doctor uh, 
the right, indeed the duty, to inject you, force you to take medicine that you don't want. Yeah, completely. Everyone should have the choice on this. It's like anything else. I mean, you know, it should be about individual, especially with medical procedures. You know, there's various reasons why people won't have the jab. Some people might be trusting their natural immunity. Um, some people might have medical conditions. Some people might just be literally anti-jab. But fundamentally, it should be about choice. Um, there is a lot of evidence to suggest that the jab, for instance, is reducing serious cases. That's a good thing. But there's also a lot of evidence to suggest that the jab isn't having any impact in terms of transmission. So therefore, it should be for all age groups down to the individual to decide, not um, coercion from so-called progressive governments. Now, going back, just touching on a point as well about the left and the paradox of the left, we're at, we've had a crisis for two years where the real winners of this are big pharma, big corporates, media largely surviving through the, the avenues of advertising revenue streams from government, and a lot of the left seem to be supporting all of that rather than the areas they would traditionally support, and that's kids' welfare, elderly isolation, job losses, waiting lists that are going through the roof. And if you look at the UK's point of view, we've got over 6 million people waiting for non-COVID treatments. That's normally the domain of the left, and they're turning a blind eye to all of yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, completely ignoring it. Progressive governments who are effectively allowing big corporates like Big Pharma to get stinking rich and at the same time taking away people's individual choice, in particular medical autonomy. Anthony, uh, you alluded to it. Let me put it more sharply. It is the mantra of liberals and leftists uh, that uh, no state can proscribe the right of women to have abortions. Bodily autonomy is uh, normally uh, one of the slogans of the left. I don't myself share it. I'm against abortion. But the, uh, the idea that uh, people should be free to decide that they are going to have an abortion however late in the term, and there are many people who support it right up to the very last minute, uh, but that the state should be able to force you to have an injection uh, these don't sit easily with each other, do they? Absolutely don't. And the funny thing is, I, it's hard to even get one of these uh, pro-mandate people to even debate because you realize if you get to the logical conclusion of their viewpoint, they'd say, well, you're putting everyone else in danger by not taking the medicine. And that just contravenes that the medicine is, one, supposed to protect them, and two, that... Uh, it's just, you're just existing in a space and breathing. Like, that doesn't make, you know, being a potential viral vector is not a crime, basically. Well, uh, as James just said, the vaccination is effective on the basis of the evidence we have of stopping you getting the, uh, the disease, uh, the virus, uh, seriously or even fatally. It manifestly does not stop you getting it. Or Trudeau would not now be hiding from his own people with COVID. Because he's already oh, yeah. triple, quadruple vaxxed. <laughs> Trudeau, I think he's uh, back in the wings looking for more uh, advice from his pal Klaus Schwab.
I think that's where he's <laughs> taking his marching orders from. <laughs> well, Anthony, thank you for that. James Melville, been a pleasure meeting you, uh, albeit over the airwaves. Thanks very much for joining us. Is Boris Johnson right that COVID is over? A, yes, B, no. Oh, my goodness, that has gone off like a rocket, I must say. You must check out, by the way, the uh, interview I did with Roger Waters and Randy Cardico, who runs a wonderful uh, podcast uh, several days a week, I think, in America. Uh, he's really a terrific guy. I've known him for a long time now. Uh, but he brought together Roger Waters and me in a wide-ranging and if I say so myself, pretty interesting and at times profound, sometimes even moving discussion. Uh, do please look out for that. Uh, the votes are rocketing upwards on this is COVID over. Uh, I'll give my own view on that in uh, just a minute. But we're joined. He squeezed us in right before the Super Bowl by the coolest of them all. Galen Nixon, the most popular of our American correspondents, I can tell you officially. Garland, thanks uh, very much indeed for joining us. Before we go on to the serious business, who's going to win this Super Bowl? And what is it anyway? Well, I'm, I'm going with uh, the Cincinnati with uh, Cincinnati on this one. I'll, I'll, let me put it like this. I'm, vote, I'm rooting for Cincinnati simply because they've never won a Super Bowl. And, um, you know, Cincinnati really hasn't won any sports championships in probably 25, 30 years. So I'm going with, a, going with a, the, the city that needs a little bit of uplifting. Didn't Jerry Springer come from Cincinnati? He was the mayor of Cincinnati, I seem to recall. Yes, yes, in fact, he was. Um, and, uh, you know, uh, there are a lot of people rooting for Cincinnati. It, the, the other the thing about the Rams is it's a team that's moved around a lot. And Los Angeles has all of these transient teams that, you know, they're there for a, for a few years while the owners collect a couple billion dollars in a new stadium. And there are many suspecting that the Rams will be another team moving through Los Angeles on the, on the, on the way to the next uh, owner's money grab. Uh, yeah, Kroenke owns uh, the Rams. Uh, he also owns uh, Arsenal, uh, an actual football team here. Let me, uh, I'm sounding like I know what I'm talking about here, but I don't. Uh, you call it American football, uh, but the last thing that happens is anyone putting their foot on the ball. Uh, how do you account for its popularity in the U.S.? Well, you know, uh, the, the thing about it is uh, it's in part of it is it is a unique, un, uniquely American game. And it is, you know, it started here in America. We have what's called Pop Warner Leagues, where kids start pay, playing at a very early age. And, uh, you know, believe it or not, my, my my best friend played in the national, played college football, played in the National Football League. And he had a couple of kids and he said, uh, I'll let my, my sons play soccer. He said, because, uh, I, you know, I got my brains bashed out and my knees broken up in football and, and I prefer my yeah. two sons play another sport. Uh, that's a very good sport. point. Maybe that's what's produced all these political leaders that we have <laughs> suffered under uh, from your country. But uh, on to the serious business. Uh, Garland, this may be the last time we get to talk to each other, either because the world's about to come to an end or we're both going to be taken down and off the air. Uh, it is a very serious moment, isn't it? Uh, we could be on the verge of, and your government says we are on the verge of, what will turn out to be 
a cataclysmic war in which many will die. Yeah, and you know, a big part of the discussion that started here, um, a, a, a brilliant uh, economist named Michael Hudson wrote an article in at thesaker.is in which he argued that this isn't about Russia or China, that basically what the U.S. empire is trying to do, it's trying to um, uh, increase its stranglehold on the EU. Uh, when the U.S. initially said they wanted the European countries to join them in their crusade against China, a number of European countries said no. Uh, you see, um, they are, you know, European countries are acting independently. They're trying to increase trade with Russia and China. They're looking out for their own economic needs. And the U.S. wants to basically cut them off from trade. So in a way, in an abstract way, um, this isn't really about Russia as much as, as it is the U.S. empire increasing their stranglehold on, um, on the EU. And basically, hopefully, as far as the neocons would be concerned, to sacrifice and martyr Ukraine so that they can get more power over the EU. I personally don't think it's going to happen. But the, I they are actually asking Europe to sign a, sign a suicide note. Uh, you, America can live perfectly happily without Russia. Uh, and indeed without China. Uh, but Europe can live without neither. Uh, in the very short term, in this bitter winter, uh, a, a war with Russia, ending all gas supplies from Russia, will bring Europe to a crashing halt. Uh, for any European power to sign up to that is the surest sign of vassalage, isn't it? It is. It's, it's pure suicide. And I think that um, there are a number of European countries that are figuring that, that out, not the least of which being Ukraine. One thing to keep an eye on in Ukraine, it, because the question is, if a war were to kick off, how would it start? Um, clearly, the Russians are not going to invade Ukraine out of the blue. Um, however, if the Ukrainian um, military were to launch an offensive on the Don, on the Donbass, on the, the Russian-speaking regions of uh, eastern Ukraine, clearly Russia would be obliged to act um, to counterattack to protect them. I think basically what we've been seeing lately from Ukrainian leadership is that they realize the U.S. Is just wants to throw them to the dogs. The U.S. just wants to watch them get turned to rubble, and they can use that as an excuse then to separate the EU from Russia. And I think um, Vladimir Zelensky is, uh, I, from what I've seen, he, he, he doesn't want to have that. Keep an eye on Petro Poroshenko. He's back in town. I understand that the U.S. and Canada have acted um, very, have, have acted uh, um, frequently and powerfully to stop the Ukrainian government from um, arresting him, which was their original plan. So th there could possibly be a move to replace Zelensky with Poroshenko if they can get him to agree. But even then, they've got to get an, a, a, a Ukrainian leader to agree to turn his own country to rubble and possibly cost his own life on behalf of the U.S. getting getting more power over the EU, that's a tall order to ask anyone. As you describe it, it certainly is. Um, if uh, I asked this uh, of uh, an earlier guest also, how is all this playing in Peoria? Uh, what are, the are the American people aware that we're on the brink of something potentially as uh, volcanic, as earth-changing as this. Yes, well, they can't help me, but be for this reason. The U.S. media um, is, um, you know, night and day. 
uh, reporting that, you know, the Russians are going to invade Ukraine yesterday, basically. That, they, they, that's the only thing they haven't said is they're going to invade them yesterday. But it, there's a constant um, barrage of that. The danger there is for the, for the U.S. Uh, media is that this has been going on for several months and now it's hit a fevered pitch. If, as I suspect, um, the Russians do, do not cooperate and the Ukrainians are not as suicidal as the neocons would hope, um, they're going to run into a brick wall at some point where they're going to have to stop saying it. And um, what little, um, uh, you know, what little respect that the U.S. media has will melt away even more. The grand old Duke of York famously marched uh, 10,000 men up to the top of the hill and marched them down again. <laughs> Uh, and, uh, and there may be, uh, if you're right, something of this. Let me move on, uh, if I may. Uh, I've been having a, quite a fierce uh, discussion on the show this evening about these truckers, the truckers' convoys. Uh, we've got the traditional left people that tell me they organize speaking tours for me in Canada and so on. Uh, who use words like Teamsters, use words like uh, Canadian Labour Council and so on, uh, describing people who are manifestly workers in that they work for a living driving a truck. I don't know how much more of a worker you can be uh, when you drive a truck for a living. Even if you're the owner-driver, you're a worker, uh, unless you have some kind of weird definition of what a worker is. Um, denouncing people, taking direct action against a rotten government as fascists. Is this happening also in the U.S.? I think this discussion is, ha is, is happening in the U.S. You know, I'm 100% with you, um, and that is I'm not about who's doing it or what their particular ideology is. I'm about, you know, what they're doing and the importance of what they're doing. I think it's important. To, when, this is an important discussion right now. If we look at the origins of the terms left and right, where did they come from? In the 17, 1800s, during the, in the uh, French parliament, those who literally, it was, a, it was a literal metaphor, those who sat on the right in the French parliament were those who supported the monarchy and the establishment. Those who sat on the left tended to support the poor, the commoners, etc. So if you look at this movement, if we were to um, judge it by the initial standards, the original standards of left and right, you one could argue they're working class people and they're, go, they're, they're fighting against the establishment policies. That would make this a left wing movement. Now, I wouldn't want to go yelling that around because it might freak out some of the people that are in it that may not, you know, see that the same way. But that's my, you know, my view of it is it is whether we call it left or right, it is an anti-establishment. It is an anti, it is, a you know, against the, I guess, literally, you could argue in Canada, it is opposing the monarchy. So it, it's a traditionally left, it's a workers movement. I think we need more of this. One other thing I think you should look at, you know, the Kellogg, we had a huge Kellogg strike here. And it was 70% of the workers were, were doing great. There were 30% new workers who were going to get, uh, whose benefits weren't going to be as well. So the 70% joined the 30% to strike on behalf of the whole. There's, I've heard anywhere from 80 to 85% of the truckers are um, vaccinated. That means that the majority are joining the minority on behalf of the whole. To me, that's traditional, traditional trade union worker type activity. And I think those on the left who don't supporting it are missing a tremendous opportunity.
I feel that, absolutely. Uh, but we've definitely put the cat amongst the pigeons. There's even more calls coming through now. I've no idea whether these people support the truckers or not. But it does, as you say, uh, raise a bigger question of what's left, what's right. Uh, the, uh, there are many people here who regard themselves as on the left that support the European Union. There are many people here who call themselves on the left that support NATO. Uh, there are many people here that call themselves on the left that support forced vaccination of people, forced medication, although they have a different take when it comes to issues like uh, abortion. Uh, there, are, there are moments when you feel that you're living in or through a, a watershed. Uh, is it left to support Joe Biden? I say no. Is it left to support the U.S. Democrats? I say no. I, I would rather at this moment, in acute international crisis, I'd rather that Trump was in the White House than Biden, because I believe that Trump, with the uh, fascination for the deal uh, that he has, he'd probably be there right now trying to make a deal. Uh, and so what's left and what's right in that picture? Over to you, Garland. Well, I, I, here's something that I think is important. You know, traditionally, when we say fascism, such as in the literal Nazis in Ukraine, we're talking about ultranationalism. Well, when I look at the uh, the Biden administration and the authoritarian actions that they're taking, one could argue that it's a form of ultra-liberalism that gets goes so far overboard that it becomes a form of fascism. You know, fat, the fat, true fascism is neither left nor right. True fascism can borrow from the left, it can borrow from the right, whatever rhetoric needs to be used because true fascism is, is, is about being able to have power and enact whichever policies you are, so uh, you would like to enact. So I would argue that um, the terms left and right now in America, not only do they not apply, you have to be careful because they are being used by people to mislead um, a, a lot of our citizens to oppose policies that are in their best interest. Garland, thanks for joining us. Enjoy the game uh, tonight. I won't be joining you in watching it because it just looks like a game of rugby spoiled to me. Uh, but thanks for uh, joining us. Now, uh, to... Uh, British political matters with our own correspondent, the wonderful Shadia Edwards-Dashti. Shadia, thanks uh, very much indeed uh, for the call. I wanted to ask you uh, something um, up front, because, partly because you're a woman, uh, but also because you're an acute observer of these things. Was Liz Truss seeking to uh, mimic Margaret Thatcher on her brief and ill-starred visit to Moscow. Oh, she was definitely giving her best Margaret impression. Certainly, <laughs> it did feel I like that. that. Didn't... Yeah. Uh, also, interestingly, looking into that in slightly more detail, she appears a lot on the government's official uh, photographs page. So I think she's got a bit of a penchant for a camera rig, and she's definitely doing a bit of posing in her best Thatcherite position there, definitely. And uh, Boris should be a bit anxious about that, shouldn't he? Because uh, it seems to me she's limbering up for a leadership challenge. Yeah, it certainly seems like she's gearing up for that, going off to Moscow, trying to do her best diplomatic uh, mission. She's trying to 
put herself in the forefront of politics, left, right and centre. Every single day she's in the media now and it certainly feels like when a leadership contest happens, I think she'll be uh, one of those that puts her names right into the hat. Now, uh, not many people could stand up to Sergei Lavrov, the veteran uh, foreign minister of Russia. He's been at the top for 33 years and Liz Truss has been in her job for five months, but she clearly didn't even look at an atlas on the aeroplane journey. Indeed, she'd been on quite a few, some of them very long aeroplane journeys. She hasn't been studying much about Russia and Ukraine before, uh, as I say, the ill-starred encounter with Mr. Lavrov. Oh, it was absolutely disaster, to be honest. She said she was going there to try and defuse, have some sort of uh, tactic of diplomacy, and from the very get-go accused Russia of aggression and said that Russia needs to prove it's not an aggressive state in this circumstance. I mean, talk about guilty until proven uh, innocent. It should be the complete reverse. She actually did a disastrous job uh, over there. And talking of, of her tactics, she went out there saying that Russia needs to stop uh, these war of words, stop the war rhetoric, and she went out straight away with a war rhetoric herself. Now you, uh, you uh, issued the magic words there, stop the war. Uh, that, they've been in the news also. Uh, the lab, Labour leader, Keir Starmer, uh, accused uh, those of us who want to stop the wars uh, of, uh, of effectively being uh, enemy agents. I mean, just from the very get-go, Keir Starmer is supposed to be the leader of the opposition. It seems that the only thing he is opposing is the left. And an attack on Stop the War Coalition was really quite shocking in some ways, not so shocking in others. I wasn't particularly surprised that he's attacking uh, the left, even though he's supposed to be uh, somewhat re representing them. But attack on Stop the War Coalition is really, really significant at this point when a war could be uh, imminent. He's supposed to be trying to do everything to defuse uh, all of that and going against an organization that is absolutely at the forefront of peace in the United Kingdom, organizing about peace. And the only thing, the only crime Stop the War Coalition is guilty of is trying to present a different narrative to the mainstream media. Instead of ratch ratcheting up this uh, war rhetoric, it's trying to look from a different lens, trying to give a bigger picture a slightly more truthful uh, picture and trying to engage in critical thinking. And that's something that Keir Starmer is not doing at all. Uh, he, he says that he's uh, uh, an anti-war activist himself. This is completely the opposite. To go against the Stop the War Coalition is absolutely detestable. Yeah. Now, uh, speaking of absolutely <laughs> detestable, um, Boris Johnson is also uh, deep in trouble, isn't he? He... Uh, has been sent uh, documents by the police. Uh, it's called a questionnaire, but it's basically asking them to uh, fess up and plead guilty uh, to breaches of the lockdown rules, which are not serious crimes, but they are politically damaging, no doubt, and will be inflated in the media as politically damaging. They'll probably involve a £100 fine. Do you think that uh, if that is the outcome of the police action, that it will uh, trigger a leadership challenge against Boris Johnson? Well, first and foremost, a questionnaire. A questionnaire, it doesn't take a legal expert to know that that's not 
exactly the right way to go about things in terms of the process, the legality process. I've never heard of somebody that is thought to have committed a crime be handed a questionnaire. If that was the process, we'd have so many more criminals walking on the streets. I mean, that's arguably uh, contestable in itself. But still, this is a bizarre way to look at it. Now, if Boris Johnson is fined, if he is found guilty, you would think that it would be the time to walk the plank. But I would argue that that time has long come already. He should be out. He should have been out a long time ago, uh, not just for these uh, Partygate scandals. They are bad enough, but so, so much more. Uh, if we even look a few years back, proroguing Parliament, this sort of thing. He always finds himself above the law some way, shape or form. And Boris Johnson is now trying to sweep even more things under the carpet. I mean, he pretty much needs a cleaner to do all of this sweeping for him, or at least he needs to buy a bigger carpet. Uh, who would your money be on? Uh, Prime Minister Truss or Prime Minister Sunak or somebody we haven't heard of yet? It's a difficult one. I think Preeti Patel seems to be... Uh, I feel like she's got her eyes on that prize. She's not really been too much in the news as of late. She's always finding herself into controversy after controversy. But we do know that she's after it. Rishi Sunak, I, I don't know if he's, if he's got the guts for that, to be honest. But whoever it is, it's dark days to come. Well, let's see what happens. Thanks very much for that, Shadia. Much appreciated. Now, it's almost the end of the show. So I'm going to press this red button. You can count on me not to blow up the world with this red button. I'm not sure you can count on Joe Biden to do the same. Live podcast go live. You are listening to the Mother of All Talk Shows podcast with George Galloway. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.